0: Yeah, the military in Hawaii, looking back on a sterling military career uh, with Robert Lee, Etcherton General, Major General of the state of Hawaii. Um, wonderful to have him on the show. Uh, thank you for coming down, Bob.
1: Thank you, Jay. My pleasure.
0: So let's uh, let's talk about what you've been doing since you retired a couple of years ago. Uh, and then let's talk about your you know, perspective. <laughs> uh, your perspective is really sure. important. And I, and I would like to add one thought there is that you know, retired seniors have a special perspective, not only about the military, but about the world in general. And it, we really need to keep in touch with them um, to examine that perspective. It's very, very helpful to us. So uh, tell us about what you've been doing since you retired, Bob.
1: Well, thank, thank you, Jay. Well, first off, as soon as I retired, uh, General Shinseki, former Chief of Staff of the United States Army, and at that time, Secretary of Veterans Affairs called me in and says, Bob, you're going to have some time on your hands. You need to do this. And this was uh, to award the Congressional Gold Medal to the Nisei soldiers of the famed 100th Battalion, 442nd Infantry Regiment, and the Military Intelligence Service. And the 442nd being my former unit in the Army, how could I tell him no? Besides... There's this communications dialogue between a four-star and a two-star. It kind of goes one way from the <laughs> four-star to the two. So uh, we honored uh, the Japanese-American Nisei soldiers of uh, of World War II and for what they did, their exploits uh, not only in combat uh, in the field, but uh, how they changed society in Hawaii and the United States from uh, internment camps to being part of uh, mainstream America. So that was a very enjoyable experience. And unbeknownst to me that there was an effort uh, in about 2017 to kind of award the Congressional Gold Medal to Chinese American World War II veterans. And at first I thought, hmm, you know, uh, they were the only minorities that did not serve in segregated units. They must be okay. And, not knowing my history, shame on me, that uh, like a lot of minorities in America during World War II, they had to fight to join in order to fight. So there was an additional hurdle. Uh, The Chinese Exclusion Act uh, targeted a racial group for the first time in America's history. So at the outbreak of World War II, Chinese Americans uh, couldn't vote, couldn't own property. And in fact, 40% of the Chinese Americans in America were not even citizens. But they said, this is our country, and uh, we're going to defend America. So they signed up in in World War II. So out of the eligible population, 20,000 served in World War II, uh, roughly uh, one in five at about a 20% mark. Now, a lot of Americans served in World War II, and we really needed all 16 million Americans at that time to defeat Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. But uh, that 16 million um, comprised roughly 7% of America's population. So the Chinese uh, served at uh, three times the, the, the ratio at, uh, and uh, they could serve in any unit they, they chose. Uh, most of them joined the United States Army, and at that time, part of the Army, the United States Army Air Forces, Army Air Corps. And then the rest, the, then you found Chinese Americans in the in the Marines, the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the Merch, Merchant Marine. So uh, they got to serve everywhere, fought on uh, land, sea, and air, and served in every uh, theater of operations. Quite uh, a feat that. Uh, it was a story that we had to tell.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of stories from World War II that we really haven't yet uh-huh. examined, that we haven't told. We're still learning about World War II, and that that is one of those stories, the Chinese Americans in the, in the military at that time. It's an important story.
1: Well, okay. last
0: go ahead. Last week, uh, we had a show on Westlock and the, and the second Pearl Harbor, they called it, right. 1944. That was also a story. I don't is think that, a lot of people know about that.
1: Right. And um, but I think uh, what I found in common with the, the Nisei getting their congressional gold medal and the Chinese Americans receiving their congressional gold medal, because that generation never tooted their horn. They, they felt they just did their duty. And um, um, people have asked me, why did it take so long to recognize this generation? Well, that's because if we had done this 25, 30 years earlier, the living veterans would have told us, knock it off. We don't need, we don't need this. It wasn't until the majority of the, the veterans have passed and the family members said, yeah, I, I think my, uh, my dad or my grandpa would would, would like this uh, recognition from the Congress of the United States, one of yeah. the, the highest uh, award that can be bestowed by America on a, on a group of Americans for what they did.
0: So glad that happened. So glad you organized it. But but you know it's interesting you don't you don't hear that much uh, about uh, Chinese senior officers I mean American Chinese senior officers and right. and now there's a certain amount of um, you know press coverage of Susie Lum as the new president uh-huh. of the East West Center uh, mm-hmm. what does that what what does that mean what does it signify
1: for you Bob Wow great um, the Susie Barris Lum when I knew her. As a rising star in the Hawaii Army National Guard, uh, when I first met her, was Lieutenant Colonel Susie Varyslum. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, uh, one of my first duties was to send her to Iraq with the rest of the 29th Brigade. <laughs> and they, uh, she and the rest of the soldiers of the 29th uh, did very well in the t- 2004 uh, deployment. And we uh, kept the, kept wa- I kept watch on uh, Susie uh, gave her a lot of assignments and uh, each one she she did well, but I think she really flourished when we assigned her to Paycom and, and then now Indo-Paycom, where mixed with all the other services, uh, she really shown uh, her, her talents. And I'm glad the board of the East West Center recognized uh, that talent. Excellent choice in selecting her as the president of the East West Center.
0: That's great. That's great for the East West Center. It's great for Hawaii. It's great. It's great for Chinese uh, senior officers. And I really appreciate that. So, let's, let's talk about what you've been, um, you know, doing in terms of uh, consulting, because I think, as I said before, the perspective of a senior officer is unique. Uh, You learn things, you see things, you examine the world with a, with a perspective that's special. And, and that is something that we should that we should recognize and, and, um, and, and, and give you opportunities to express. So my question is, uh, you know, what are you doing in terms of consulting now as a retired uh, adjutant general, major? General?
1: Well, Jay, well, I'd like to kind of maybe go backwards in time a little bit where a lot of members of your audience are, you know, they're, they're aware of what the National Guard does in, in our state and in every state that, um, you know, they're, uh, you You have a problem, <laughs> you call out the guard, whether it's a domestic disaster or uh, a, a quick one brewing, uh, but anyone that, uh, you, when you need immediate action, you need to do that. But I wanted to cover uh, another aspect of the guard that's a bit un- unknown and uh, uh, not widely uh, known to the public is that uh, the guard, marries up with countries across the world and work uh, hand in hand to, uh, uh, to improve their uh, military operations and even uh, civilian operations. And we call that uh, in, in the National Guard the State Partnership Program. And in Hawaii, for many years, uh, we partnered with the Philippines, And uh, during my tenure, what a a big surprise when Admiral Keating called me up and says, uh, uh, um, Indonesia has selected Hawaii as a state partner. Oh, my goodness. You know, we were about 1.2 million then and the largest democratic Muslim country in the world with about 250 million. Uh, we might get overwhelmed. But no, it's 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 okay. So we started really not with military engagements, but more with emergency management. They had just gone through a horrific a horrific uh, Aceh earthquake and tsunami. You know, Americans can't fathom in a in a natural disaster losing two hundred and fifty thousand city citizens, and so uh, with the uh, Hawaii Tsunami Warning Center he installed multiple uh, tsunami warning devices throughout the archipelago of Indonesia uh, to provide them uh, future uh, advanced warning of earthquakes and tsunamis. because what happened back in uh, you know two thousand and four, I believe. Uh, it's going to happen happen again and then we ramped up the number uh, thanks to senator inouye that installation of uh, many uh, tsunami warning buoys uh, throughout the pacific throughout the, the rim, rim of fire so we that engagement was really um uh firsthand and i remember dr chip Macquary who headed the pacific tsunami center and uh, governor lingo at that time went to sign the state partnership agreement with the minister of defense surai sono and she was uh, amazed to find dr chip mcquery even more popular than the governor of hawaii he was the rock star he was installing all these tsunami early warning systems uh, uh, throughout the indonesian archipelago but then we quickly engaged into the military side of things on how to um uh, improve Indonesia's military capability and uh, so we prepped the Indonesian armed forces for United Nations peacekeeping operations and to this day Indonesia has only one peacekeeping mission their their forces two battalions worth are between Lebanon and Israel in the border area Interesting. And I tell friends that says, you know, it's so much easier to have a, or better to have a competent Muslim force that you can count on keeping the peace, being neutral, than to try to have Americans or, you know, a NATO unit trying to enforce the peace between uh, Lebanon and Israel. So that's really a good example that I would like to segue and give kudos to my friends, uh, the former adjutant generals for the state of California, because California led the training of the Ukrainian territorial reserve forces. And my friends tell me that in 2014, when Russia invaded and took crimea and parts of uh, the donbass area by force Uh, ukraine was caught flat-footed i mean the military wasn't prepared but they said putin's going to come back for more we just don't know when so let's get serious about defending our country and of course nato laughed and the united states laughed oh no i mean that that's not that's not going to happen but the ukrainian military took it upon themselves to improve their operations did a lot of exercises with nato and the california national guard started to ramp up the ukrainian territorial defense forces that served in in their area of assignment they weren't going to jump all over ukraine but you know they knew the territory for their towns they knew how to set up ambushes for the Russians, and they knew how to shoot javelins and anti-tank missiles. This is a reserve force. So I, I bet the yes-men of the generals that told uh, President Putin, you know, what he wanted to hear, that uh, they thought invading Ukraine in 2022, they would run into the same military, Ukrainian military force. But now you have another 100,000 plus very well-trained reserve forces and glad to see that they're taking it uh, to to the Russians. So it's this uh, National Guard partnership that we have with probably over 50 countries throughout the world right now, that uh, in addition to um, uh, the the disaster response, uh, we're we're certainly uh, building uh, the capability of uh, many uh, democratic uh, countries so that uh, they get more bang for the buck from their own armed forces.
0: Yeah, it it really is very important. And you're right, we don't know about it. And it's fascinating to hear you describe it. And I mean, a lot of our shows are fascinating, but, Bob, this is really fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) So what is the difference between the contribution made overseas, you know, in these various countries and hotspots, between, you know, the regular Army, regular United States military and the National Guard? How how do they come at it from different ways?
1: (laughs) Okay, Okay. I I think... uh... But I'd like to give an example. Uh, when I Governor Lingo and I first went to Jakarta to sign up on the, the, um, the state partnership between the state of Hawaii and the country of Indonesia, and I remember saying this to uh, Defense Minister Suresh Sono, because the chairman of the Joint Chief, General Peter Pace, was visiting Indonesia and Jakarta, and they were rioting in the streets. And I told the defense minister, Sura Sona, said, you know, I don't think this is such a good idea. Maybe this is a little too early. The country may not be ready for Americans. He said, no, that's, that's not true. We need to sign this and do this now. You know, Hawaii, you guys are different. Everybody loves Hawaii. And so the National Guard comes in really at a non-threatening level. They know we do a lot of emergency response, uh, and and that's normally uh, the inroads in there, how, how they would, we would work with them to re- improve their emergency response system, and for example, we change, I mean, not we per se, but working with the Indonesian government on all their natural disasters, uh, everybody looked to Jakarta, the capital, what are we going to do, and they said, we got to change this, we're the, the bottleneck so they started to make the provinces and the provincial governors responsible to take to be the first responders and to uh take care of the disasters within their uh provinces wow wasn't that uh a spotlight you know and we we wanted them to come to their con this conclusion instead of sort of telling them what to do so they finally realized that being decentralized. Yes, Jakarta will help you, just like Washington, D.C., when you get a little overwhelmed and you need FEMA money and other assistance, we'll, we'll come and help. But the governor and the mayor, you're you're first up. You need to take care of the emergency, and the guard will be there to, to help you be successful.
0: This reminds me of comments that Barack Obama made um, uh-huh. to explain um, you know, his worldview, that it was different, because he was from Hawaii, and Hawaii yeah. is a different worldview. Yes. And, and I, that's what I get from your discussion. Hawaii is a different worldview. It's a different perspective. <clears throat> and then, you know, in terms of your experience, the National Guard experience, uh, we see things. We in Hawaii have a special advantage mm-hmm. socially and, and um, you know, geopolitically. Uh, and politically in the United States, uh, the regular uh, U.S. military deals with uh, the chain of command out of Washington. Um, the National Guard deals with the chain of command out of Washington but also the state. So yeah. you can put those two perspectives together. Tell me, tell me if I'm right.
1: You are absolutely correct, Jay. And I think um, I, I wanted to uh, just give another example because uh, I think we're seeing in Europe how well uh, NATO has come together finally <laughs> and growing and being a unified uh, perspective. But uh, why not Asia? That how come there's no such thing as a NATO, And from my experience, uh, the countries, you know, they kind of don't trust their neighbors, but they'll gladly make a deal one-on-one with the United States. So you have all these individual countries uh, making a bilateral deal within the United States. But um, when we had Homeland Security meetings, because I'll tell you top of mind when I first got appointed was really terrorism. And the last thing I wanted, was a bomb going off in the Alamo a shopping center and knocking off all the tourism. So I was watching the uh, Islamic uh, uh, radical groups taking hold in Indonesia and the Philippines, and how it was slowly <laughs> moving, uh, moving from uh, east, uh, west west to east. And that was my my concern. And one of the reasons for holding. the the Homeland Security conferences was to invite Malaysia, Brunei, and all these Asian countries were put in a room, you know, they're no longer, they're kind of in neutral turf. So they were exchanging prisoners uh, pictures of uh, the Islamic terrorists, how they moved from Jakarta to Malaysia, to uh, to Thailand and they're all exchanging information that uh, uh, and uh, and having a good uh, dossier on, on how they behave and sharing that type of information at at, at that time. So uh, we we talked about the rotating this security conference throughout the, the the Pacific just to give other nations a chance. And I was summarily voted down. I said nope, we're going to come to Hawaii all the time because we can get access to indo and all the services and, and Hawaii has a good atmosphere for sharing some information that we would not share with our neighbor directly uh, in, in the theater. So I thought that was a bit interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's the whole notion that Dan Hawaii set up at APCSS, isn't it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Making us a, a kind of hub for right. security around the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, Well, you know, um, uh, I'd like to have a hypothetical with you, uh, Bob. Uh, I'd like to give you, you know, here on a given Tuesday afternoon, I'd like to give you $40 billion. Okay, (laughs) I I really like you a lot. And I'd like to give you forty. dollars billion. You're nice. You're nice. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd like to tell you, why don't you you spend about half of that on humanitarian and half of that on military uh, in Ukraine? so the question is you know how does that change the narrative right now how does that change the way things are working and how would you spend my special gift to you bob
1: okay first of all um i think things are going well in ukraine with the new systems coming in uh, russia cannot uh, technically uh, rebuild their tanks and their cruise missiles by the way you i hope the public realizes that yeah Ukraine is taking some hits from the Russian cruise missiles, but really over 50% of them don't reach the target. And if they do, they, you know, they don't cause a hit. So what I'd like to do is take your generous money and I would like to gift to Taiwan two things. Hmm. Okay. First thing I would do is uh, uh, with Taiwan Semiconductor, business to business, uh, fund them so that uh, Starlink is over Taiwan, all right. Not only over the island of Taiwan, but I would like Starlink to expand out to a hundred nautical miles to reach the Chinese coast, all right. Then the other part of your money, I would like to purchase the Iron Dome system mm-hmm. for Taipei and other key installations. I think those two areas and not necessarily U.S. military solutions. But that will make Xi Jinping think twice about trying to forcibly take Taiwan.
0: Well, I mean, you you suggest uh, that the United States has not spent the money before, not as much. We have we have great military. We Mm -hmm. spend plenty of money in the military, but we have to spend the money on being a presence. Uh, not only in Europe, perhaps more than we have been, but in Asia, perhaps more than we have been, you know, by expanding the quad, you know, and firming up the quad. Um, mm-hmm. And we have to be a presence. Now, there are those people in the country who don't feel we should do that, uh, who feel we should be more nationalistic and isolationistic. But, you know, in protecting the liberal world order, seems mm-hmm. to me one of the lessons here of the past few years is that we really have to be the world's policemen. And we have to hold. We have to be the city on the hill, the mm-hmm. beacon on the hill, and we have to maintain our moral liberal order uh, in order to preserve the world liberal order. What do you think?
1: I think one one more thing is, uh, like it or not, America has to be the leader, because the world will will follow us because we're doing this for an ideal that will make them okay, you know, uh, further their freedom and, and democracy. We're not looking to take it away from them. So every time I hear that America wants to lead from behind <laughs> and not to, not to step up, it really bothers me because we're, we're, we have been afforded the driver's seat based on our actions on all the previous years, our sacrifices, and, and that's how we can, we can help the world. Uh, so we need to step up in, in that matter.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of takes us back to the early part of the discussion here today about the, the medals, about the congressional medals um, for the uh, you know, Japanese soldiers in World War II and the, for that matter, the Chinese soldiers in World War II and the contributions. You know, It's like when you look forward, you have to remember the sacrifices that people made in American history, mm-hmm. uh, and we can't throw those away. Uh, they they define us, and they obligate us too to yes. continue to continue what we were doing. Um, these people gave their lives, many of them, mm-hmm. for a reason.
1: I mean, is that your thinking? Yes, and uh, I like to bring up one point with this national award um, for the Nisei soldiers and for the World War II. Chinese American veterans, but bring it closer to home, because I reviewed thousands of records, um, pictures and uh, discharge records to make sure that these veterans and their surviving families uh, were due the congressional gold medal. And, uh, you know, the Chinese Americans, uh, that's how it was back then. A lot of them were cooks in the in the military or ran laundries. But uh, it was different from Hawaii. So, what stood out was the top Army soldier, Captain Francis Y. Punahou grad, Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, gave his life in the liberation of the Philippines when MacArthur landed again at Leyte Gulf. And uh, he uh, received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his heroic actions. And then you have Admiral Gordon Chun USS 6B, Battle of Okinawa, hit by a Kamikaze, Commander Chun Hoon at that time, and he survived, saved the ship, and went on to become a rear admiral in the United States Navy, also from Hawaii. And then finally, in the Army Air Force, we have Captain George Lee, a distant cousin, I believe, All right, wow. recently, recently found out that he was a fighter pilot in the Flying Tigers in China shot down three Japanese planes. Now the Mitsubishi Zero was a superior fighter than our old P-40 Warhawk. So he was must have been one hell of a fighter pilot to shoot down uh, three three Japanese. And uh, also from Honolulu, Hawaii. So you have the top Army guy, top Navy guy, and Army Air Force, Army Air Corps guy. It must be in the water we have here, I guess, huh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I always say that. It must be the water. Yeah. And so looking, looking at what we've talked about here today, Bob, um, you know, the, the legacy, the tradition uh, of the National Guard, uh, of um, our Asian um, you know, soldiers over, uh, over a long, long period of time and mm-hmm. multiple wars, actually. Um, what's your advice to people in Hawaii about how they should see the military, how they should see the National Guard? How they should see service. How they should see the role of the state and the National Guard in the state uh, vis-à-vis, you know, events in the world today.
1: Well, first of all, um, I think the people of Hawaii, we uh, we enjoy a tremendous support from the community for uh, the members serving in the in the military and and especially in in the National Guard. Uh, so we we appreciate all that support, but you know, we have to work on this for every generation. They Especially if there's not a shooting war or anything like that. It's uh, hmm, what do we need you for? Why do we need to spend spend all this money? But it's all about uh, preparedness, because if you prepare for war, you're really able to handle uh the, you know other other emergencies in a in an organized and well manner. And I just like to say, like during COVID, when the National Guard was called to uh, to step in. I, for one, uh, saw some state agencies very dysfunctional, and they couldn't they couldn't handle day-to-day uh, uh, functions to support the people of Hawaii. And so the National Guard came in, helped organize it, got contact tracing, vaccination, whatever. And on the mainland, oh, you're short of teachers? Well, we'll go do that too. And guarding borders, thank goodness that uh, we have a big, big ocean. But uh, that's just to as you know for army guy using a naval term just to write the ship so that then the the organizations can now then then take over and uh and and to 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 serve the public so uh for the young people you know consider joining the national guard um and i uh i tell them if you have a six-year enlistment uh, we have so many good benefits if if you don't get a college degree at the end of your six year enlistment, shame on you.
0: <laughs> ah, thank you so much, Bob. Uh, Robert Lee, um, is adjutant general of the state of Hawaii, major general of the state of Hawaii, um, uh, with long, long career of service. And, and I, I say this to a lot of people, but I want to say it especially to you. Bob, thank you for your service to the state and to the nation.
1: Mahalo, Jay. Pleasure being on your show. Thank Take
0: you. care. Dr. Aloha.